Alright, so this evening we will pick up in Deuteronomy 25, and Lord willing, uh, get through the end of Deuteronomy 26. It's an important night because we are coming to the end of this long uh, middle section of Deuteronomy. So just as a reminder uh, as to where we are. So where we are geographically is we are on the east side of the Jordan River uh, with this second generation of Israelites. Um, the first generation, of course, uh, the generation being saved out of Egyptian slavery and then subsequently falling uh, in the wilderness because of their grumbling and disobedience. And so now this is the generation of their children and Moses, uh, as his final address here in Deuteronomy, is recounting the law to this second generation of Israelites. And so, uh, just as a reminder, we saw in the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, we saw a recounting by Moses of the, uh, the history of Israel since the Exodus um, coming out of Egypt and then getting them to the place uh, there on the east side of the Jordan River. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we saw uh, the Ten Commandments. And again, the reason the Ten Commandments show up in Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20 is because Moses gives the Ten Commandments twice. He gives them, God gives them, to Moses in Exodus 20, to that first generation of Israel. And now Moses is repeating the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5 to this second generation of Israelites. Now, that's the first part of the book of Deuteronomy. We are now going to finish up this second and long middle portion of Deuteronomy tonight, which runs from chapter 6 through chapter 26, so 21 chapters of Moses giving this divinely inspired commentary on the Ten Commandments. That's what the bulk of Deuteronomy is. It's a, it's a commentary on the Ten Commandments. And um, we have tried uh, to do our best to map those Ten Commandments through these chapters, 6 through 26, and we'll see that again tonight. Um, and they're generally in order, um, commands you know, 1 through 10, and we'll finish up tonight with the 9th and 10th commandments. And there are other things uh, interspersed, which we'll also uh, see tonight a little bit. But, but in my attempt in these, uh, these highlights series through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, I've been trying to, uh, in a sense, make these books um, smaller for you and, and, and um, more easily understood because they can be overwhelming at times. So just the point is that chapters 6 through 26, as you're doing your devotional reading, as we finish it up tonight, just understand that this middle portion of Deuteronomy is just this a divine commentary on the Decalogue, on the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to finish that up tonight. We're going to pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 13. Moses says this to Israel, You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly, is an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. 
Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Okay, so here we have uh, what would essentially be a, a short commentary on the ninth commandment, right? The ninth commandment, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, we can do that together. Deuteronomy 5, verse 20. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, verse 20. Uh, the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so what we see here that this bearing of false witness against your neighbor is manifest in what we would call uh, differing, verse 13, or unjust weights and measures. You're, you're deceiving your brother. So just imagine that... Um, your your one of the Israelites uh, is a shop owner, right? And and so there's a sense in which when your when your buddy comes in, you give them the better weight or the better measure. And then when somebody you don't like comes in, your neighbor comes in, you give them the measure or the weight that is going to cost them more money. And so that's that's in a sense what is uh, what is happening here is that you have these unequal or unjust weights and measures. And and as I was studying. Through this, what came into my mind, at least, was uh, James chapter 2, where James uh, harps on the idea that we ought to show no partiality. We ought to treat everybody the same way in terms of the weights and the measures. We don't want to overcharge certain people for uh, unrighteous reasons, reasons or undercharge other people for unrighteous reasons as well. This is, in essence, bearing false witness against your neighbor. And you can see this is uh, pretty serious. So the blessing in verse 15 is given here, right? You shall have full and just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. This is a blessing. So if you treat everyone righteously and fairly and do not bear false witness against your neighbors, then the Lord will bless you in your land. However, verse 16, you can see this warning. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly, is an abomination to the Lord. Uh, A couple other places where you will find a reference to this particular law here in Deuteronomy 25. So in Proverbs 11.1, you can find Solomon uh, saying the same thing. And then Paul actually picks up on this particular law in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6, where he exhorts the Christian uh, Christians not to defraud their brothers, for that's an abomination to the Lord your God, verse 16. Now, speaking of abominations to the Lord your God, we have these verses in verses 17, 18, and 19. And so, um, this takes us back several years in our study of the Pentateuch, this um, Amalek, or the Amalekites. And so, uh, back all the way back, I'm not going to go back there, but if you would like to go and and refresh your memory on that, uh, all the way back in Exodus chapter 17, so this is before the covenant is established at Sinai. So it's between the Exodus, uh, the Israelites being rescued out of Egypt, and before uh, Sinai, uh, the Israelites are on their way to Sinai, and uh, the Amalekites come and actually they attack uh, the Israelites, but they attack them. Uh, in a a very unjust way, um, they they attack the the weakest part 
of the uh, the multitude there that came out of Egypt. They attack the, the weakest part first. You can see that in verse 18, um, that how uh, Amalek met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. And so, um, as we talk about justice in the context of equal weights and measures, um, it, it's it's a little bit of a stretch, but, but clearly uh, God uh, is going to justly judge the Amalekites for them taking advantage of Israel, especially the weakest parts of the multitude that were coming out of Egypt. So this uh, destruction of, of Amalek, which, by the way, is also mentioned in Exodus chapter 17. And, and if you remember, that was the battle where Moses went up on the, the uh, hill. And so Joshua is leading the armies of Israel and Moses goes up on the hill and he takes with him Aaron and Hur. And when the, the Moses' arms came down, if you remember, the uh, Israelites began to lose the battle. And so eventually Aaron and Hur hold up Moses' arms and uh, the Israelites uh, defeat the Amalekites, and even in Exodus 17, uh, God says to them that the Amalekites should be wiped from the face of the earth. And so this is, in essence, a just consequence for Amalek's unprovoked acts of cowardice and arrogance against Israel and their God. Um, this, uh, the, the Amalekites are picked up again a couple of other times uh, in the Old Testament, I would say most notably for your reference. If you'd like to go look at it, you can go to 1 Samuel uh, 15 and you can see uh, King Saul, the first king of Israel, dealing with the Amalekites there. Okay, uh, Deuteronomy 26 verse 1. Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you shall bring in from your land that the Lord your God gives you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. But there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God, and worship before the Lord your God. And you and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. Okay, so let's, let's pause there. So we're, again, finishing up this middle section. Um, and what we'll see as we work our way through is that this is a, a bit of a commentary on both the 8th and 10th commandments. And when we get to the later portion of the, 
the chapter we'll see that. But but here's this reiteration of this offering of the first fruits, right? So three times a year, as you remember, God has uh, commanded uh, the Israelites to go to, he says in verse 2, go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name, which eventually, as we know, will be uh, Jerusalem, uh, where the king will reside. Uh, and, and so God will establish this place in Israel, and that's the place three times a year where the Israelites are to go, and they're to have these feasts. And this would be the offering of the first fruits, or feast of the first fruits. And and so what is being laid out here in chapter 26 is this transaction uh, that is supposed to happen uh, when the Israelites bring, bring the first fruits of their field to uh, to Jerusalem, or to the place which God has established. And you can see in verse 3, there's the beginning of, of this long, what we would call kind of a creed. It's almost a creed, right? And so there's this this emphasis on remembering how each individual Israelite who brings their first fruits to the temple, or to the tabernacle, a remembering of how he got there. Right? And, and he didn't get there alone, but he, he got there as a long, in a long line that leads back to the fathers, which are referenced a couple of places. So this creed begins in verse 3, right in the middle there. I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And that goes all the way back, as you know, because we harp on it all the time. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. Where God promises Abram, while Abram is asleep, that he was going to give his descendants the land that he was sleeping on. That is the land of Canaan. So this verse 3 goes all the way back to that Abrahamic covenant there in Genesis chapter 15. So then uh, in verse 4, the priest takes the basket from the hand of the Israelite, that offering of first fruits. It's set down before the altar. And then in verse 5, again recounting here uh, in verse 5, My father was a wandering Aramean. So that is a reference to Jacob, uh, who later became the man Israel, the father of the twelve tribes. And the reason why he's called an Aramean is because, in fact, uh, much of his family were Arameans. So, for example, his mother, Rebekah, was from the land of Aram. If you remember that story of, of how uh, Isaac... Or Abraham sent his servant uh, to Laban, right to to, to Aram, which is uh, Syria, essentially, um, to find a wife for his son Isaac. And so Rebecca is an Aramean. Laban was an Aramean, and we also have to remember that Jacob himself lived in Aram twenty years. If you remember, he served twenty years uh, for Laban, and he did that for his two wives, Rachel and Leah. And so Jacob himself, I mean, having lived 20 years in Aram, uh, himself is referred to here as a wandering Aramean. And then, of course, the remembering that Jacob went down, verse 5, to Egypt, and he sojourned there, few in number. If you remember, uh, at the end of the book of Genesis, there were 70 persons only uh, who were called down into Egypt 
um, Jacob and his family as Joseph there was the uh, vice president of Egypt as it were. So they were few in number but at the end of verse 5 the remembrance that there he, Jacob and his progeny became a great mighty and populous nation and then the recounting of how they were treated in verse 6 harshly and they were afflicted and imposed hard labor on us. Then we cried to the Lord, verse 7, This we dwelled on this very much at the beginning of our study in Exodus, that the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression, verse 7. And then fast forward past the ten plagues, and it says in verse 8, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, right? So over and over again, what we're going to see is we're going to see that this there's this remembrance and declaration on the part of the Israelites of their dependence on the Lord their God, over and over again. And we see that in verse 8, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. That would be the plagues that were poured out on Pharaoh and his household and his nation. Verse 9, And he, the Lord, has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. So even in the giving of the first fruits of the produce, there's an acknowledgement here in verse 10 in this creedal statement that it's the Lord that has provided these to me, and so I return a portion of them to him. And so then he's commanded, the Israelite man is commanded to set it down before the Lord your God. And then this is, we've, we've, we've seen this before in the Pentateuch, but I just want to emphasize it here again. In verse 10 it says, And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. Verse 11, And you and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. And so again, we've talked about this before, but I just want you to see the the. the strong tie between the worship of a good and holy God and our rejoicing and how that should breed in us rejoicing. Right. So when you go back and look through the Pentateuch at the times when Israel is called to feast in Jerusalem or feast in the city where God had called them, they're always called literally to feast and to rejoice during those times. And so we see that our worship should be tied to our joy. And one more comment in verse 11. It says, You and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given you and your household. And so what was uh, ringing, uh, so the, the rejoice reminds me of Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 where Paul says rejoice. Again, I tell you rejoice. And then Romans 8.28, right? This idea that all things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so even these, these New Testament scriptures, these New Testament verses which, which we know and have committed to memory, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice, or Romans 8.28, we see they're just echoes of language that we've already seen in the Old Testament. Alright, picking up in verse 12. When you have finished paying all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you shall give it to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. 
And you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion from my house, and also have given it to the Levite and the alien, the orphan and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed or forgotten any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. I have listened to the voice of the Lord my God, I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, and bless your people Israel, and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey, as you did swear to our fathers. Okay, so we have here, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to, to verse 12 in this year of tithing, but what I want you to see is that this tithe is given. We've already seen uh, the tithe in Deuteronomy chapter 14, uh, verses 28 and 29, and the purpose of the tithe here is, is explicitly tied in verse 12 to the Levite, to the stranger, to the orphan, and to the widow. And in verse 13, this tithe is referred to as a sacred portion, right? And so this is where the tie-in to the 8th and 10th commandments are. So just as a reminder, if you want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, Deuteronomy 5, the 8th commandment is found in verse 19, you shall not steal. And then the 10th commandment is found in verse 21 of Deuteronomy 5, you shall not covet. Right, And so what we have here is a bit of a commentary on both the 8th and 10th commandments because the point here is that this first fruits that Israelites are commanded to offer are a sacred portion. They belong to God. They belong to God. And so if the Israelites eat of them themselves, then they are actually stealing from God. And more than that, they actually not only belong to God, but God has apportioned these first fruits for the benefit of the Levites, the strangers, the orphans, and the widows, those who are most in need of Israel. So not only are you stealing from God, but you're stealing from those around you who are most in need, and you're actually coveting, in a sense, that which is set apart for their benefit. You think that something is yours that is not yours. And so we have this very brief commentary here, uh, almost near the end of Deuteronomy 26, on the 8th and 10th commandments. The, The sacred portion that was to be set aside of the first fruits did not belong to the Israelite who grew it. It belonged to God, and then by proxy, it belonged to the most needy in Israel. And then we see here at the end of this particular paragraph, we have this prayer, right? Look down, verse 15, look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground which you have given us, a land flowing with milk and honey as you swore to our fathers. And so you have this juxtaposition of this look down and bless. And and back in Numbers, if you remember in Numbers chapter 6, we talked at that time about the Levitical blessing or the Aaronic blessing where when God looks upon a person that is equivalent in a parallel fashion to God blessing that person. And so as, as the Israelite ends his prayer Uh, After offering his first fruits, he's praying that God would continue to look upon him, look upon Israel, look upon the, the land itself. And when God looks upon an Israelite or looks upon the nation or looks upon the the ground itself, then that is the conduit by which the blessings from God flow to Israel. 
right? And, and, and one final thing here before I, I roll back to verse 12. At the very end of verse 15, as you swore to our fathers. And again, like any good prayer, I would say, like any good prayer, and we've seen this with the intercessory work of Moses in Exodus and in Numbers, any good prayer is always appealing to God's promises that he has made to his people and his faithfulness to keep those promises. Right? And so our prayers should be characterized by an appeal to God's word, God's promises, and an appeal to the attribute of God's faithfulness to keep his word and to keep his promises to his people. And so we see that again and again through the Pentateuch and we see it here in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 15. Now, let me, let me talk a little bit, go back to verse 12. I want to talk a little bit about um, this, the tithe and the third year, which is referred to here in verse 12 as the year of tithing. So, uh, then, uh, some study on this uh, in the past week. And so, um, there's a lot of different views, uh, frankly, uh, on what the tithe is and how much the tithe was. So, for example, if you go out and look at commentaries or do a simple uh, search of this uh, on your favorite internet search engine, you will find those who hold the position that a tithe is a strict 10% on an annual basis. Um, There are some who believe that um, the Israelites were required uh, to provide as much as 23% of their income in any particular year. And there's a lot of discussion about this this tithe in verse 12, the third year, which is called here in verse 12, the year of tithing. So um, I, I don't want to be dogmatic about this because I, I, don't, I don't think there's actually a lot of data uh, on this in the Old Testament. And it's also true that when you go to the Jewish sources that are outside of the Bible, um, they actually don't agree either, <laughs> frankly. And so there, there's, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, ink spilled on this particular topic. What's most convincing for me, just to give you uh, some perspective, what's most convincing to me um, is that the tithe is a strict 10% annually, except, and this is what uh, this is what it means by the third year. So if you remember, um, you, you know, of course, what a Sabbath day is. A Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week, what you and I would call Saturday, where the Israelites were commanded, according to the fourth commandment, to work six days, but then to to make the Sabbath holy and to rest on the seventh day. So we're all familiar with that. Um, I think as you've been uh, rolling through the Pentateuch with us here, you're also familiar with the Sabbath year, right? So the Israelites were commanded to to uh, sow their fields and reap their harvests uh, six years. And then the land itself was supposed to be given rest in the seventh year. And that was called the Sabbath year. And then if you remember... This is unrelated to this particular topic, but just as a reminder, after seven Sabbath years, there was the 50th year, which was the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all of the property that had been uh, had been taken would be returned to its original owner. And, and so the stipulations for the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year are given in the Mosaic Law elsewhere. Let's go back, though, to this Sabbath year. So if you go to Leviticus chapter 25, if you go to Leviticus 25, I I just want to to touch on this, because I think it does help to explain what this third year, the year 
of tithing is. So Leviticus 25, so the, the latter portion of Leviticus, as you know, is part of the holiness code. And so here in Leviticus 25, God is laying out the stipulations for the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. So, if I pick up in verse 1 of Leviticus 25, the Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Your harvests after growth you shall not reap, and your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. And all of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food, yourself and your male and female slaves and your hired man and your foreign resident, those who live as aliens with you, even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all its crops to eat. And so here we see the stipulations for the seventh year. Now, if you would turn the page over to verse 18 of Leviticus 25, verse 18. The Lord goes on to say this, You shall thus observe, and by the way, what's in between uh, verses 7 and 18 is, is the stipulation for the Jubilee year. Verse 18, You shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments so as to carry them out, that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. Verse 20, But if you say, What are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. That's the tie to Deuteronomy 26. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat the old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. And so I happen to believe, again dogmatically, I happen to believe that this stipulation in Deuteronomy 26 is tied to those three years in in Leviticus 25. So in the seventh year, which is a Sabbath year, there's no tithe. That's year one. In the eighth year, as the Israelites are sowing their fields, there's again no tithe. That's year two. And in the ninth year, then the Israelites are sowing their fields and reaping their harvests, and for the first time in three years, bringing in that tithe to the place which God had ordained for them. Ultimately, that would be Jerusalem. And so that would be year three. And the reason I believe that it's emphasized here as part of the commentary on the eighth and tenth commandments is because this is emphasizing uh, that it's incumbent upon the Israelites to not forget the needy, um, uh, the needy uh, in Israel after not having tithed for two full years. And so they need to be reminded after not having tithed and brought their tithes for the widows, for the orphans, and for the needy after two years. It's emphasized here because in that third year, which happens to be the ninth year, right, they're they're exhorted again to remember to bring in those tithes to make sure that the most needy among them are cared for. Alright, so kind of a long commentary on uh, Deuteronomy 26, verse 12, and the tithe. Alright, let's finish up. And here you can see that we see, uh, it begin, back in Deuteronomy 26, 
verse 16 through 19, we see that we're ending up this section, this middle section, which is a commentary on the Decalogue. That's what we see in verse 16. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have today declared the Lord to be your God, and that you would walk in His ways and keep His statutes, His commandments, and His ordinances, and listen to His voice. And the Lord has today declared you to be His people, a treasured possession as He promised you and that you should keep all his commandments, and that he shall set you high above all nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. So we see in verse 16 uh, that Moses says that what he's been doing for the last, what we would call 21 chapters, is he's laying out the commands and the statutes and the ordinances which God had given to him. And then he says at the end of verse 16, You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. And so I'll just say it again, right? God doesn't want this obedience uh, that that, uh, is not joyful. That our heart's not in it, right? It reminds me of Romans chapter 6 verse 17 where Paul's speaking or writing to the church in Rome and he says, But you, you became obedient from the heart. Right? And it takes that regeneration work, that being born again by the Holy Spirit of God to give us a desire to do the statutes and the ordinances of God with all of our heart and with all of our soul. Verse 17, 18, and 19. This is the essence of the covenant. Now we will see in a couple of chapters in Deuteronomy chapter... Oh, 29, just in a couple chapters, so in a couple sessions, we will see the renewal of the covenant with this second generation of Israelites at Moab. But here in 17, 18, and 19, we have this preview of this covenantal language. You have today, Moses says to Israel, you have today declared the Lord to be your God, and that you would walk in His ways and keep His statutes, His commandments, and His ordinances, and listen to His voice. And the Lord, for His part, has today declared you to be His people. That's covenantal language. You are the Lord's people, and the Lord is your God. And he says, this is amazing language, in my view, in verses 18 and 19, when he refers to Israel as a treasured possession, as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments. Verse 19, and that he shall set you high above all nations which he has made, for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God, as he has spoken. Alright, so again, that's covenantal language. We will get more covenantal language next time we're together. Um, We'll see how it goes, but my plan is to cover the entirety of um, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 next time because in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 you have the curses on Mount Ebal and the blessings on Mount Gerizim and this is again also covenantal language. There's a lot of if-then statements. Now that God is your God and you are God's people, here are your obligations to the covenant and then in chapter 29 we will come back and we will see the renewal of that covenant which was initially cut back in Exodus 20 through 23 at the base of Mount Sinai. So here we are at the end of this large middle section and we're headed to curses and blessings next time 
we're together.